the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn. Boy, we're going to try to rush this episode through. I'm excited to get to it. But before we, we jump right in, let's let's take care of all the, the intro stuff for the, uh, the episode. Sure. Well, we've been on a roll, though, with yeah. uh, with getting episodes out. We've got like almost every two weeks, we've got an episode planned to, to roll out. So look at us sticking to a New Year's resolution. After 10 years, we might have finally figured this out. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm reminded of back in high school, had a, an econ teacher for high school econ who had retired from the Chicago Board of Trade. So he didn't really need to keep working, but he liked to teach econ. So he taught at my high school and I went to an all boys school and he would on certain days come in and say, gentlemen, we got some good shit today. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Setting the bar high. <laughs> all right. Where are we going to explore and where in the world today? For where in the world today, I have a series of clues for you to name this country. Sure. So the first clue is it's the second most biodiverse country in the world. We've already covered the most biodiverse country, which was Brazil. This is the second most biodiverse country. Right. And it has the highest number of species per area. It tends to be a little smaller country compared to Brazil. Most countries are. But it's uh, a high number of species per surface area. The name of this country derives from an Italian explorer. When this country was first discovered, let's say discovered, it was named New Granada. Huh. It okay. is the number one emerald producer in the world and third biggest producer of coffee in the world behind Brazil, which is number one, and Vietnam, which is number two, which right. I think we two, discussed. Two countries I can cross off the list. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Shakira comes from this country. And finally, if you still don't have it, they are the largest producer in the world of cocaine. What country am I thinking of? Is it Colombia? I'm sorry, sir. No. It's Colombia. Colombia. <laughs> Colombia. Sure. Really? I thought Shakira was from Brazil. You know, I did too, but apparently she is Colombian. Okay. Well, you know, the hips don't lie. That's and <laughs> neither does the cocaine. <laughs> the reason I have chosen Colombia because we're oh. going to be discussing an article from Columbia University. What, what, I mean, <laughs> true, but... <laughs> Columbia University, yeah, in New York. Right, so there's a difference in the location a little bit, but... I, there's I, a connection. I, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, see, I see where you went with that. Oh, thanks. All right, so yes, let's get to it. Uh, you and I have both received from probably each of us two dozen different people. Oh, at people, least. People not in forensics, people lawyers and lay people and just so many different sources we've received emails texts linkedin <laughs> facebook messages just constant barrage of notifications that apparently you and i are going to be out of a job real soon because <laughs> guess what fingerprints aren't unique 
and uh, therefore yes. our forensic field is in trouble. I'm quaking in my in my socks. <laughs> yes. So uh, yes, <sighs> we we thought it would be important because we're not the only ones. I'm sure many listeners who are fingerprint examiners have been getting notifications about an article that basically says, well, we finally proved that fingerprints aren't unique, and now we have a major problem. And this is a research study that's coming out of Columbia University, published in Science Advances. That's the online journal branch of AAAS, which is the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And this article was published by Gabe Guo, Anive Ray, and many others. Although we should mention the professor, Wenyao Xu. And name of the article is Unveiling Intraperson Fingerprint Similarity via Deep Contrastive Learning. And it was published January in 2024, just fairly recently, which yes. is why we're getting... <laughs> All of these notifications. Yeah, it, it started off as a text and then got another text and then was looking on LinkedIn and saw a message and another message. And it, it definitely had the right buzzwords to to spread across media and social media uh, you know, very quickly. And, you know, the articles also being passed around in attorney circles uh, online. Which is one of the reasons that we thought it'd be important to get this episode out right away. Because yeah. we have been getting questions from colleagues. How do we address this article on the stand? What if we get asked about it? And we will talk about that towards the end of the episode. Our goal right now is Eric and I, in preparation for this episode, we decided we would first go through the paper. We wanted to to basically talk about the merits of the paper and what findings authors actually have. And then we'll begin to draw some distinctions about how popular media and these other sources have misunderstood the findings of the paper. And that's what's causing all the problem in the hubbub, is that there are some interesting findings in the paper that we can talk about. And then once we point those out, <laughs> that's where it <laughs> stops. But then it has taken a life of its own by the misunderstanding of what those findings are. So that's, uh, that's where we're going to start with the paper. Right, right, it, and it's it's not even just a, a misunderstanding. It's just the you know the news articles and the text of the paper are just they seem like they're from just different sources. They're, they're exactly. So let me jump down to the materials and methods section of the paper because I think that that's a good starting point for what's going on here. What what research was done here in the paper? So they started first with a, a collection of. Uh, fingerprint image data that's publicly available. Uh, so mainly this came from NIST data sets. At a high level, what they wanted to do is train an AI, an artificial intelligence algorithm, to take as input two images of fingerprints and uh, analyze those two images and then output whether or not they're from the same person. So not looking at the same finger, but either having two fingerprints from the same person, but from different fingers, or having uh, you know, two fingers from two different people. Right. So they gave the AI data to train on, and then they tested 
data from from these data sets on how accurate it was at doing this. So the idea is run the model on two fingerprints and then kind of measure the distance that the AI kind of determines these two fingerprints are apart and establish a threshold. And if it is less than that threshold, then the two fingers are, it guesses that the two fingers are, two prints are from the same person, but different fingers. Or if it's beyond that threshold, it guesses that the two prints are from two different people. Right. Though the idea here is what they're measuring is effectively the similarity within a person. So how similar is my left middle finger to my left ring finger to my left index finger to my right index finger or right middle? And as you said, they're taking effectively the right middle finger of one person, person A, and they're taking the, the right ring finger from person A. So you have two fingers from the same person, different fingers, and it wants to know, are these from the same person, person A, or from another person, B, C, D, etc. So that's what it's effectively doing, attempting to look at similarities within a person's set of fingers to see if they're similar enough, whatever that might be, and that's where we're going to get to, whatever similarities it's looking for, enough to say, I think these two fingers came from the same person, not the same finger, but the same person. And I can see how lay people and people reading this will confuse that and not understand that this is looking at literally different fingers, a right middle and a right ring from the same person to see if there are similarities. So, you know, the results of this paper overall were that when given these samples of fingerprints either from the same person with different fingers or from different people that they could guess uh, from this method whether they were from the same person or different people about i think it was 77 percent of the time yeah yep 77 percent of the time it could basically say this is probably from the same person and be accurate you know three out of four times yeah, I did not find that particularly impressive, but let's let's dig in here a little bit and, uh, and explore some of the information here in the paper. But it does demonstrate one of the things that they're looking to test, whether or not there are high degrees of similarity within a person across their fingers. Yes, this isn't necessarily anything new to us. Exactly. <laughs> so we're not terribly surprised by this. The authors were very surprised by this, seemingly, but we were not. I mean, it, it spells it out very clearly in the paper, right? It says, you know, quoting from the paper, in this work, our main discovery, this should be really key here, our main discovery is that fingerprints from different fingers of the same person share strong similarities. That's it. That's the quote. That's it. That's the quote you should take. The main discovery. Right. That's exactly the phrase you'll want for court as well, because that's what the paper has demonstrated. 77% of the time they can tell that, using these data sets. Birds fly, fish swim. Water is wet. News Water flash. is wet. Um, congratulations. I... <laughs> well, well I, and I get where you're coming from on that, because they really do make it seem like this is a groundbreaking finding. 
And that part of it is not groundbreaking to any fingerprint examiner. Now, to be fair to them, it's not very well established in the literature that that's known. It's one of those things, like you just sure. named off, right? Water is wet and marshmallows taste sweet. There might not be a lot of citations in the literature on that, but it's a known thing in our field. In fact, Eric, I'm going to share this with you. Uh, since we're on it, we're going to enjoy this. Here's a citation from our literature that effectively is pointing out this is something that we already know. And guess where it comes from, Eric? The FBI black box study. <laughs> okay. You, you ready? Here's a quote from the FBI black box study, one of our most famous papers. Uh, this is from a part of their appendix where they're explaining their selection of non-mated pairs in the FBI black box study. And here's what it says. They use two processes to select difficult comparisons, difficult non-mates. The first process was to have an examiner go through a list of 20 candidates returned by IAFIS at the time, so looking at AFIS lists for close non-matches. Sure. But the second process for selection was selecting an exemplar from the neighboring fingers from the correct subject. So... In the FBI black box study, they use the method of selecting nearest neighbors, other fingers from the same person, knowing that they can be confounding and have a high degree of similarity. This is something that we have known for years in our field, and any examiner who does comparisons, especially manual comparisons, looking at a fingerprint card, will sometimes stop at, let's say, the left middle finger and go, wow, there's a lot there. I feel like it's the right guy. And then you go onto the left ring finger, and boom, there's the match. You just had to go one more finger over. It's like you were getting close because you started to see things get in line, but there are still differences. Bam, right. you go to the next finger or two, and there it is. Yes, it's a common experience when comparing fingerprints because you know even as you start going through a set of fingers, you can sometimes get that feeling it's here somewhere and you may eventually find it or, or, or sometimes not, but I'm sure that uh, all the examiners out here listening have that experience where on occasion you start comparing. I mean, you start with finger number one, usually as you're going through, you start to get that feeling that it's here somewhere. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times that's not based on, any specific features, but it's based on this kind of uh, this extra detail present, right? The ridge width, uh, the texture. That's the word my trainer used, Eric, was texture. That there was you go. literally the word he used to describe this undescribable amalgam of thickness and distinctive shapes and like weird trends that were happening within that fingerprint. He just called it the texture of the fingerprint. Yeah, it's like how spotty are, are the ridges? Like how, how, how do the ridge units versus ridges kind of connect? How, how prevalent are creases throughout the, mm -hmm. uh, the fingers? It's like none or just a cut, like one or a couple or tons of creases. Lots of incipients, lots of enclosures. Right. And that is consistent across all fingers. 
especially all fingers when they're captured at the same time within the same couple minutes of each other. And we'll get into that here in a minute. Yeah. Uh, but when that is all consistent, you can start to look at, you know, finger one, finger two, and start to go, wait a minute, this feels kind of right. And even if you don't see the similarity until finger nine, you're like, I think I'm on the right track. It's someone like this. Or maybe yeah. you go through the whole thing, you don't find it, and you're like, you're thinking to yourself, I bet you it's this guy's brother. Um, yeah. This is common experience with fingerprint examiners in going through and doing these comparisons. Another example, too, is sometimes if it's a lateral reversal, like a left-right image, yes. you're, you're looking through the same side, your brain still picks up the textures are right, and you might get that inspiration to flip it and then check it, depending on the type of surface, and, th and that's happened before as well. But what this alludes to, like you said, the common experience that we all know as examiners, it's one of the little flaws in the paper is that it really would have benefited from having a fingerprint examiner just involved, if, if not a co-author in the paper, just reviewing it for comments of, hey, if you're going to start writing things in this domain, let's get a few things right here and let's, let's uh, you know, make some alterations to kind of make this fit. We're not disputing the finding. I understand the finding here, okay, and we're going to get to some other things here in a second, but it's how it's being presented that is the lacking part of this. If you look at any of the text or audio or video online, you know, maybe maybe save you from some embarrassments like using the word swirl or having <laughs> upside down fingerprints. You know, just <laughs> kind of the <laughs> the the basic fingerprint one hundred and one kindergarten level version of fingerprints that you kind of want to avoid getting wrong. So, like you said, there are, there are these things intuitively that we're picking up on, and I think one of the things I actually really enjoyed the, about the paper was they did this multi-level analysis of, so what's AI looking at? Mm. We we can't articulate exactly what it is. Even you and I struggled to articulate what what it was that you key in on other than this feeling. But with AI, it can be a little more specific. And I thought that was kind of cool that they showed how these different extraction levels, and this is where I'm out of my element now talking about computer science, which that is not my domain, but sure. they do talk about different kinds of features that they're looking at different levels to represent different vectors in the fingerprint and uh, all these different uh, layers of features. Let's start there and then I'll kind of talk more about the data sets overall. But if you go to, if in the paper, you know, figure four, I think is a good starting point for showing where in the print that they're looking mm -hmm. uh, for these similarities or differences or kind of what the AI is relying on. Even in the supplemental sections of the paper, this is figure A1, A2, uh, et cetera, you see these heat maps of where the AI is looking, what the AI is relying on, essentially. In general, you see this heat map centered on the center of the fingerprint, right? Right in the core area. And in kind of taking a closer look at these images here, you know, to me, it seems like, yes, you know, that is kind of what the, the AI is zeroing in on. However, that also happens to be 
kind of the same area that's replicated throughout, right? So there is this predisposition of fingerprints to be captured with the core, the center of the fingerprint in the middle of the image, mm -hmm. more or less. And in the data that used for this study, there's a variety of, of rolled images, uh, slap images, and contactless uh, images. And, you know, the part that each has in the center is the core. So it's not entirely surprising to me that that is the region that is highlighted by the AI because it's the region that is most likely to be replicated across every capture version of the image. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. And I thought too, when they were looking at things like the raw image, the binarized image, the orientation, ridge density, and minutia. They're looking at all these different things. Even you, Eric, when you were demonstrating some Idemia software to me once, you went right to the binary skeletonized version of the fingerprint and some of the orientation ridge maps to show how APHIS uses those things as well in analyzing fingerprints for minutia detection, uh, image-only matching, and those sorts of things. So we know that this is important information. Absolutely. In a lot of the publications, you might hear the word 60,000 prints thrown around, right? They, they utilize 60,000 prints for this study. Well, yes, but the main portions of the publicly available fingerprint data they used were NIST uh, Special Database 300, 301 and 302. So NIST 300 is a database of about 900 inked fingerprint cards that have been digitized. There are in a variety of different conditions, some good, some bad, but a variety of, of different people. But again, one card per person, about 900 people. Mm -hmm. NIST 301 is kind of the dry run for NIST 302. And it has 51 people included in it. And then finally, uh, NIST 302, fantastic, really large database with you know, a lot of information available in it, captures of people coming in of their latent prints and their 10 prints from a variety of different capture devices, but 331 participants. So right. overall, 1,200, maybe 1,300 people total in these three data sets. So the whole 60,000 number, you know, while that may be representative of the number of like images or, or prints that they used, we're talking of a much smaller data set of people. Okay, so in this 302, they used a lot of different capture devices, traditional live scan, you got your rolls and you got your slaps. The way it worked is you, they got a group of people to come through a room where all these different vendors had set up their devices and the people had just to kind of go around in a circle and had their fingerprints captured on a variety of different devices. You had about five minutes to capture the, the person's prints, but all of their prints were captured in one record at the same time within five minutes. And all of the captures across all these different devices within the same day. And some of them, like I said, were live scan devices. Some were experimental contactless devices that would either generate what would look like a traditional live scan capture, 
Some were just a photograph of the finger. Some mm-hmm. were kind of, and you look at the pictures, especially, let's see if I can find an example. Figure A3 in the appendices, section A3B, the distractor image, the left little there. If you zoom in, you can see that doesn't look right at all, right? The, the bridges are going in the wrong direction. There's like five cores and no deltas. It, it looks bizarre. But this is still all included because they didn't know that this is, this isn't data you're supposed to use in this type of research because it was an experimental capture device that performed extremely poorly in replicating what an actual fingerprint looks like. So it's combining in kind of what's publicly available, but without the knowledge of what's good or bad data to feed into these algorithms. Right. That was actually one of the other criticisms, too, was that when they were training the AI, they were using another data set that basically were AI-created fingerprints. So you had these AI fingerprints teaching AI how to look for fingerprint characteristics. Now, they did address that in the paper by basically saying, well, that's not really a concern of ours because that was just used to train and use as a training set and never use as a test set. I still think it's it's an interesting limitation, and we don't know if the system would have performed maybe better if you actually had better data to start with. But in particular, like I said, NIST 302 also includes latent print images captured from those same people. But if you go to uh, page 10 of the paper here, it specifically says, we do not use the low-quality latent fingerprint samples from these databases. Uh, Since our goal is to discern the cross-finger similarities, it is harder to extract fingers from such samples. So they had the opportunity to use latent fingerprint data here, but specifically did not because they couldn't get it to work. I think that's a really important thing to to consider once we get to the conclusions that they're trying to reach based on this research. Sure. To be explicit here, none of this research involved latent prints. Nothing. It was entirely, solely, and uh, completely based on quote-unquote 10 print data. Again, it's it's a little bit broader than that because it was a combination of live scan and contactless photo-based capture, some of which was kind of garbage, but definitely no latent print, you know, where someone has touched a surface and that, that ridge detail developed later on and, and captured after development, which then just boggles the mind from some of the conclusions that they state here. Right. So that 75% is truly under the most ideal conditions, presumption being if we move to latent prints and real scene-like conditions, that number is not going to be getting better. I mean, that, when you start with the ideal circumstance, it usually doesn't get better when you go to more ambiguous data. So let me kind of explore here the data being used here. So I highlighted that it's a capture of from the same person, but on the same day. Now, a couple different capture methods may have been used, but all captured within the same day. And I'm sure that the examiners out there listening can understand that when you go and take someone's prints all around the same time, within 
you know, an hour, even if you take it multiple times within the same hour, there's going to be some similarities in each of those captures, even from within the same prints or, or across all the fingers of that person's hands, right? The, the dryness and then from the, the dryness of the skin reflected in, you know, how often you see ridge gaps, spotty ridges, creases appear, you know, all of that is going to be basically the same across that hour of time. And now you've got this factor in the image that's the same across all 10 fingers because you're not going to have, you know, one finger that's like super moist and another that's, that's super dry. They're all going to be about the same. And that's what you're going to see in, in what you capture because that's what you get when you capture fingerprints all at the same time. It, it's a huge bias in the data that they're testing here in this study. There's not a single sample used where they compare the same person prints from, you know, the different fingers from the same person captured on different days. That's huge. Yeah. And, and they didn't even consider it. It's a great point. That's a, it's a pretty big limitation, which maybe some of the reasons that the paper struggled to initially get published in forensic journals. But strong similarities between the prints. Yes, yes, there's strong similarities between the prints, especially if you're only looking at prints captured on the same day within minutes or seconds of each other. It's a very good point. One of the things I thought that was interesting was their take on another, mm, yeah, sort of thing. So I'll read this from the paper. The most unexpected result was that the minutia maps barely outperformed random guessing, meaning that these minutia maps were not very good for determining if, based on minutia, these fingers are bearing a degree of similarity, if you will, to clue in the AI that they're from the same person. And But then they go on to explain it, which the explanation is correct, so I don't understand why they're so surprised about it. They say this rareness of minutia, which are very useful for traditional matching of same finger to same finger matching, meaning they understand that we use minutia traditionally in APHIS systems to make identifications, to identify a matching finger. They understand that part. And it's this rareness of minutia is what makes them so powerful for same finger matching. However, due to this rareness, we believe that they are unlikely to occur across fingers and therefore may not be useful for cross finger matching. This is an interesting way to say Minutia are highly discriminating, and it's confusing the AI because it sees these as very different things. What it's looking for is similarities, and you're going to find more similarities in those textures, in pattern types, and ridge flow, and ridge thickness, and those sorts of things. The minutia are literally throwing the AI off because they are so highly discriminating. When we start talking about and get very annoyed at how this paper is being used to talk about uniqueness, it actually showed that the thing that we look at, Eric and I look at, to make identifications, and a big part of those identification decisions is actually being confirmed by this system as not good for the purposes of what it's trying to match are non-matching fingers in the same person. I actually thought that was kind of interesting. 
kind of interesting. <laughs> are, you, are you kidding? <laughs> oh my yeah. god! I. <laughs> I mean, they literally picked up on the very thing that makes the fingers individual <laughs> and point out this is not good for what we're trying to do. You mean they've noted that <laughs> that different fingers on the same person are unique from each other? <laughs> highly I, discriminating. Let's say sure, highly discriminating. sure. Highly okay. Highly discriminating. Okay, we'll use the, yes, the proper they, terminology. They did, they yes. did note that. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess good that they noted it, but it just makes it even more just absurd that they 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 found they found this and yet the publications the the talking points the the highlights ignore it right it, it it's just bizarre uh, of completely ignoring the finding in the paper itself that minutia matter for especially as they point out same finger matching yeah that's what makes fingerprints distinctive. That's right. what makes the characteristics discriminating. But this paper is focused on associating and finding similarities between two fingers of the same person, but different fingers. And I would go further to say two fingers from the same person, different fingers on the same fingerprint card. <laughs> so let's explore the usefulness of this comparison. How can this be used? What is the usefulness of looking at two fingerprints from the same person, different fingers of the same person, but again, on the same fingerprint card and seeing similarities between them? Yeah, because there's a bizarre thing here that they even go through a scenario is let's say that you have a fingerprint card from someone in the database, but they only had five fingers captured. And let's say only the left hand was captured in the database. So you've got all left fingers, but when the guy's at the crime scene, he leaves behind his right hand latent prints at the scene. And so what you'd want to know is, well, who in this database could be the source of these if the matching fingerprint's not on the card? That is a bit of a stretch that you're going to be missing fingerprints, but from time to time, it can happen. However... Since they completely failed to research or use any of the latent prints in these databases, this scenario is completely tossed out and does not apply based on their research. You can't include any latent prints in the the use case that this uh, this research defines. So we got to throw out latent prints. Can't be used. All right. So I'm willing to accept. Let's say that the latent prints are beautiful latent prints, almost as good as 10 prints, and the accuracy doesn't diminish that much for high-quality latents left of the scene. Let's just go with how it could be used. The assumption here is that the guy's in the database, right, because the 10 print card is there in the database, but the finger that you need was not captured on the card. Now, that's pretty rare, but it can happen. For example, if that person had a bandage on their on that one finger that day, or for whatever reason, if they were using ink, that finger got smudged, and you only have nine other fingers, and the finger that you need to match is not well replicated on the card. So what you could do, again, assuming accuracy doesn't drop for lay-ins, which it probably would, right? 
They stated that it would because right. they, the, right. they compl- right. I mean, the paper specifically says that. Let's just say, sake of argument, then you would push a button and it would basically say, well, there's a percent chance it's this guy. You're missing his 10th finger. Maybe it's him. So there's a lead. Maybe you could use that to go get a warrant to get another set of 10 prints. I'm really stretching here. In my view, you can't even go that far because it appears that they even tried to do that. And I mean, there are some latent prints in this 302 that do reach that level of quality, but they didn't even consider those, right? They didn't even filter down the latent print set in this 302 to just the good ones to even consider this possibility. They just, nope, we're not going to look at these at all. So the best that you could do is to say... Again, not even two captures. So like one day, his left hand is bandaged and you get the right hand. And the other day, the right hand is bandaged, you get the left hand. Try to match those two hands together. Can't even do that because they're captured on different days. There's not data in this research on different days. The best that you can do is say that this fingerprint from uh, on this sheet of paper, this one card, is has similarities to the other fingerprint on the same card. But beings that they're on the same card, yeah, yeah, I I already knew they were from the same person because they're on the same piece of paper. That is the extent of what you can say from this data. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we talk about is if you had a thousand leads, for example, you could maybe start with five to ten instead of a thousand, you know, going manually through those. And it could direct you towards, well, focus on these first. Now... I would just use APHIS to narrow it down to one candidate (laughs) instead of trying to enter in all this information to narrow it down to just 10. We already have a system that's way faster and more accurate. It's called APHIS, and it could narrow it down to a specific person slash finger and take all that off the table. The best you could get is from that data set saying, well, there is some probability that it could be from this person because of similarities to other fingers that this person has, and the finger you're looking for is just not well represented on this card because of a smudge or a bandage or amputation or something. So I thought of two potential scenarios. I'm helping them with their homework. (laughs) Would you like to hear my two scenarios? I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, Glenn. Here, go ahead. Okay. Let's imagine that accuracy is not changing significantly under these conditions that you just talked about. Those very important conditions, but let's just keep going with this 75% thing, all right? Okay. Suppose you wanted to search a latent print that you knew was pattern-forced and had low specificity characteristics. So if you're going to search that in AFIS database you know what's going to come back from your APHIS search will be a candidate list that has a lot of similarities to what you're searching. So what if an APHIS vendor wanted to take advantage of this behind-the-scenes thing to then massage that list that comes back and maybe promote a candidate or demote a candidate based on the other fingers on that card. Because you have searched a low specificity. We expect to find lots of close non-matches. This may help adjust some of the scores behind the scene to maybe promote or demote candidates and maybe make that search a little more efficient. What about that as a usage? And using AI to, to train the algorithms to do that. Sure. 
Yeah, exactly. But looking specifically at the other fingers that sure, sure. aren't being used on that card. That's where the value, I think, comes from the paper, is taking advantage of this other information. There are a number of ABIS vendors you know, out there in the world that are you know, looking to you know, promote their algorithms with the hundreds, if not thousands, of different law enforcement agencies around the world that could make use of, uh, of these tools. And they're in you know, direct competition with each other through programs like the NIST ELFT, Evaluation mm -hmm. of Latent Friction Ridge Technologies. So the use of AI as a tool to improve algorithms, I mean, I hope this is not a surprise to anybody, but that is, this is not a new thing. This has been well over a decade or probably going on too, that these, these vendors have been using this technology to improve their algorithms. You know, these are billion dollar companies that are investing literally millions of dollars into research to improve these algorithms, to compete in head to head competitions, showing how their algorithms perform. I've met, I know these guys that are working on these algorithms. They are mind-numbingly brilliant mathematicians, computer scientists. Just They're amazing at their job, and it feels like magic for what they can do. Is there any possibility that an undergrad in New York came up with something that they haven't thought of? I'm willing to accept the possibility of looking at the other fingers. I don't know if they have. I mean, I'm willing to accept that as a novel element of the paper, if it could help improve, especially with low specificity and minutia searches. I see I, no chance that, that yeah. <laughs> if there's any chance that this is useful at all, they already thought about it and did it a decade ago. It's impossible okay. that, the, that these guys haven't already done this. You live in that world. Okay. There's plenty of papers that get published in academia that are kind of, you know, playing with databases and testing things out when the industry is way beyond what what is published publicly. That is a great point. I mean, I'm willing to be agnostic on this and say, I don't know if APHIS vendors are using this already. I get that you're in that world and you've seen how light years ahead they are. So it's a little laughable that, like you said, what's being published, I get... Your point is that they're so far ahead that this, or, or maybe wouldn't even make a dent in the, the things that they're already using that's like warp speed. Right. Why are we adding a little bit of extra, you know, gas fuel injection when we're already dealing with warp engines? So as an example, in the paper here, they mentioned the, the algorithm that they use for minutia extraction, Right. So it's published by NIST. It's called MindTCT, M-I-N-D-T-C-T. So MindTCT is a free algorithm published by NIST that was last updated in 2010. <laughs> Think about where APHIS was in 2010 with, with software that you had to purchase for over a million dollars, right? Versus what NIST just put out there for free in 2010. Compared to what we have now, the gap in, in knowledge between what people are actually working on now in this field and what's here in this paper is phenomenal. It, it, <laughs> it, it 
boggles the mind, right? Uh, you're bringing a really good perspective on that. This is the gap. Uh, this is the the difference in in where this paper is at versus where the field is at. Fair enough. How about this? One last possibility. I'm I'm really digging here. What about if you were to use this in some way to help support a conclusion of simultaneity? Now, this is before, of course, making the identifications, but if you wanted to determine if a set of prints during your analysis were potentially simultaneous, what about using it in some way for that assessment? See, Glenn, this is why I keep you around. Because you've got some good ideas every once in a while. Because this is, I think, actually what the data in the paper can point to. Because simultaneity, you know, implies the the touch within, you know, the moment or within seconds. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think they've shown here in the data is that they can find similarities uh, between prints that were captured from the same person within seconds of each other on different fingers. And that's the exact situation of a simultaneous touch now i'd want to see it validated on specifically latent print images that were ground truth known to be deposited simultaneously versus same person deposited on different days or at different times in the same day and that's where i think it might fail is it may not be able to distinguish same person simultaneous versus same person non-simultaneous. But still, that I think is exploring more towards what the data is pointing to than the conclusions that they've reached. Yeah, we're really stretching for these because really what they're suggesting is that you're at one scene, you get a couple of finger latent fingerprints at one scene, you suspect another scene might have been done by the same person, but they're different fingers that left behind the latents at that scene. None of them hit in the database, but you want to link these two scenes so you compare the two fingerprints from scene A and from scene B, assuming that they're all different fingers, and that this might tell you with up to 75% accuracy, they're from the same person. So there could be a tenuous link between these two scenes. I mean, that has such limited applications, especially with 75% accuracy at best under ideal conditions. Hmm. I mean, Uh, throw in uh, some bite mark analysis and then you got a conviction. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) Yeah. So one one last thing here on the paper itself, they go and they, they try to emphasize how they were attempting to focus in on the ridge detail itself without letting other extraneous non-print information bias the uh, the learning for the AI, right? So they controlled for specifically image brightness, background noise is what they mentioned uh, here in the paper. Yeah, I actually thought that, again, not knowing any better, I thought, okay, that sounds like a pretty good thing to control for. You know, all these different variables that the AI could be fooled by or picking up on not relevant characteristics, but these other things. So I actually thought that was good they talked about that. And they I thought they were pretty clear in their explanation about that. 
And, and that's those are great things to control for, right? But that's not the end, right? That's just the starting point of what you need to control for. It is so important to not introduce biased samples when training an AI database. You have to be so very careful that when they train the AI to improve uh, the matchers, if there's any kind of bias in those training samples, then sure, you may start to get improvement. But if all your samples are like, say, from powder lifts, well, then, hey, you're going to start maybe get better when searching powder lifts. But that may come at a cost where now superglue prints are crap. You can't do mm. get a match on uh, searching from superglue. It's this kind of thing where you have to be super careful about how you're training. There was a paper about AI training to, to do some work automatically, but it's from the Journal of Investigative Dermatology mm. and on the accuracy of AI models being trained to recognize uh, malignant skin lesions mm. okay. uh, or cancerous skin lesions versus benign. Mm-hmm. One of the papers I found was uh, called Automated Classification of Skin Lesions from Pixels to Practice by Akila Narla and collaborators. And there was a kind of a problem in, in some research on AI being able to recognize a, you know, cancerous skin lesion. Any guess on what the AI would pick up on as a predictor of whether or not the lesion was, uh, was cancerous? I, I heard this. I know I heard this. It was something so dumb and it had nothing to do with it, with what it was looking for, like it, like a tattoo or something. Like there was something really silly. I, I don't remember what it is. It, it's if there's a scale, if there's a scale, especially if it says MM at the end of the scale, then their data set was just predisposed to having the cancerous photos having a scale in them. Yeah, that's great. And that's what it picked up on. And yeah. this is so similar yeah. in that kind of thing of if you train the AI on biasing data, you're going to get your results that end up being useless or virtually useless. And so innocuous. Yeah. All right. So one of the things I, I wanted to do was just go through the abstract. I, I don't really want to go through line by line of the entire paper. People can read it. I, I have so many highlighted notes on this. If I was a reviewer of this paper, I would have had major issues. I don't know that I would have rejected it. What I would have said is, these are things that need to be fixed prior to acceptance. I'm not saying that there is no merit to this. My biggest thing are some of the claims seem a little overextended, and I would have suggested other ways of rewording some of their conclusions and even talk to them through some of their examples. Again, what's relevant and actually useful to the forensic community, which they're pitching this as changing the forensic community. We in the forensic community have some thoughts about how this could be used. You could listen to us. And one of the things about this paper that made it a little controversial, we're going to get to here in a moment, was it was rejected. And they've been, they've been honest about that. It was rejected at least multiple times. I think it was rejected at a forensic journal first, then went to this journal and was accepted with comments, meaning fix these things, and then it can be accepted. 
And I think there was some back and forth about the fixing of the things, and then it was accepted. But I believe it was first rejected at a forensic journal, which they've discussed. But just when I read the abstract, that I want to go through because it's the one thing that people might actually read, and it's right up front. So fingerprint biometrics are integral to digital authentication in forensic science. So far, so good. So far, so good. (laughs) However, they are based on the unproven assumption that no two fingerprints, even from different fingers of the same person, are, and this is interesting, alike. Here in the abstract, it says that no two fingerprints are alike. Now, I happen to know, because I spoke to a reviewer of this paper anonymously, that One of the concerns with the original writing of this paper was that unique was used over and over and over and over throughout the paper. My suspicion is at some point this first sentence said unique, and they changed it to are alike, which is crazy change because it's an unproven assumption that no two fingerprints are alike. We know fingerprints can be alike. We're well aware of that. Alike is different from unique. And alike means that there could be potential similarities. We're well aware that fingerprints can have similarities. I actually thought that sentence was very interesting if that had been changed from unique to alike. And Eric, what was the finding that you noticed as well about unique in the paper? So note this for when we get into the discussion of the news articles and and videos that are out there where you hear the word unique every other word, basically. But if you do a control F on this paper, the word unique does not appear. Not unique, not uniqueness. And I firmly believe that's because at least one reviewer, I know multiple reviewers were on this, and I believe multiple reviewers had issues with the word unique being in this paper. But I don't know that this change actually helps them by saying that no two fingerprints are alike. It becomes a completely false statement, right? Yes. So... It's an unproven assumption that no two fingerprints are unique. Okay, yes, but it's not provable. So saying right. that it's unproven is not not <laughs> a big deal. But saying that it's unproven that no two fingerprints are alike is patently untrue. The entire concept of fingerprint patterns you know, breaks this, right? Right. Worlds are alike to other worlds, and the whole concept of of patterns was the basis for classification fingerprint databases for decades before we now we now we don't use it really anymore because we have APHIS but the entire Henry classification NCIC classification the Vucetich classification they're all based on patterns meaning that there are there's likeness between uh, fingerprints so that you can classify them so that you can have a folder system to look up these prints. It's it's just patently untrue. Yes. <laughs> this is, again, where it suffers from not having a forensic eye maybe helping them work through this and being resistant to forensic reviewers, which if this was rejected from a forensic journal, I have a pretty good idea why it was rejected. Now, the news media said it was rejected because it laid low our foundational assumptions and shook us to the core and blew away all these things we thought were true. No, it did not. The media, unfortunately, 
has misinterpreted the meanings behind this. And I truly believe that the authors are responsible for some of this, as we will show in, in a little bit. It's how they're communicating this that's the problem. Yes. It's not that this was necessarily an unsalvageable paper, even a completely meaningless paper. I, there are a couple of cool things about it. I, I personally wouldn't have rejected it outright on its merit. It's how it's being communicated to the reader. A couple of other little points here. <laughs> well, the next sentence. <laughs> the third. Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. This renders fingerprints useless in scenarios where the presented fingerprints are from different fingers than those on record. <laughs> not, not useless. No, and having fingerprints on record in 99.999% <laughs> of the time means having all of the fingers on record. There, there is not a massive set of prints where there's one or more you know, fingers missing from the record. So the presented fingers different from those on record, that, that doesn't exist. It just doesn't happen. That's bizarre. Contrary to this prevailing assumption, we show above 99.99% confidence that fingerprints from different fingers of the same person share very strong similarities. My problem here is, they're just giving a level of confidence that they tested. They're not actually giving the result or the confidence interval of the result. They're just saying we're 99.99% confidence at what we tested. But they, this is so confusing to a lay reader not familiar with statistics. How many people do you think are going to read that and go, we're 99.99%, we just showed that fingerprints aren't unique? I have to imagine... 99.99% of lay readers are going to read it exactly that way. Which you can see in the news articles and the discussions and everything about the paper. Right. Where, as you pointed out, it's closer to 70-75% accurate, at which they're 99.99% confident that that result is the accuracy that they're measuring. But again, okay. in just showing similarities within the same person which we already knew. Yes. We also find evidence that ridge orientation, especially near the fingerprint center, explains a substantial part of the similarity that we're detecting when we find similarities within the same person but on different fingers. Which, okay, that, that's an interesting finding, and I'll take note of that. Whereas minutia used in traditional methods, meaning identification, same finger matching, are almost non-predictive meaning minutiae are not predictive or helpful. Well, yeah, for what you're trying to do, they're very helpful for making identifications and sorting in APHIS, very, yeah. very helpful. If you look at the same finger, they're quite helpful. If you're looking at different fingers with different minutiae sets, they're less helpful or non-predictive. Non-predictive. Especially when you use a inferior algorithm last updated in 2010. Finally, our experiments suggest in some situations, this relationship can increase forensic investigation efficiency by almost two orders of magnitude, a hundredfold or so, meaning if you, if you have a thousand leads, you could reduce it down to maybe 10. I did not see the discussion or evidence within the paper to support that statement, at least not in a investigation that 
is commonly useful. That's the point. Commonly useful. You'd have to have bizarre situations of a thousand suspects with only one hand recorded on the card. And assume that the latent print is is 10 print quality. I'm sure people are probably picking up on this. We had some emotions going that we went through when reading this. But one of the things that I think was really setting us off was all the media storm around this. Like, I mean, I can read this paper, and just again, as a reviewer, Eric and I, you, you and I have both been reviewers for journals many, many times. I reviewed 60, 70 papers in my career. So I get reviewing papers and where you make comments to that. What has been shocking to me is how lay people and the media have taken this article and gone nutso with it. And that's what we want to kind of talk about next and why there's a little bit of energy coming from us towards this. And I think for me, one of the first places I'm going to look is what's coming out of Columbia University. Oh, boy. Yes. So on the website, there is a media relations person by the name of Holly Everts, E-V-A-R-T-S, and she released a media statement. She is like the she's like the publicist for the research at Columbia Engineering. And so I don't entirely blame her for this, but it's her name on this. And she is basically summarizing the research and has a title that is a little disturbing to Eric and I. AI discovers that not every fingerprint is unique. So now we're back to the perhaps original language in the paper about fingerprints and uniqueness. And so that's got a nice grab you title here. And then Columbia engineers have built a new AI that shatters a long-held belief in forensics that fingerprints from different fingers of the same person are unique. Now, that sentence is almost verbatim, the same sentence that we just talked about in the abstract, which is why I think it was changed from our unique to our alike. That's my assumption right there, Eric, because that sentence is almost the exact same sentence. If that sentence you just read from that press release, that seems to be highlighted, that seems to be important, the heck, that would be amazing and groundbreaking. So you'd think that you'd see it when in the paper it says, our main discovery is that fingerprints from different fingers of the same person share strong similarities. Again, this is the main discovery that they state in the paper. The little sub thing under the headline says, and it turns out fingerprints from different fingers are similar, only we've been comparing fingerprints the wrong way. Did you know we've been comparing fingerprints the wrong way, Eric? Using minutia. Well, I mean, they use minutia too, and, and they found that the two fingerprints from that are different fingers don't match. If you want to compare different fingers to each other and find some similarities, yes, I would say don't use minutia. So we could go through this article, but you can find it yourself online. Just Google engineeringcolumbia.edu. Not every fingerprint is unique, and you'll certainly come up with this. Uh, But one of the things that I wanted you to hear was from the author himself. So here is the author of the paper, Gabe Guo, saying what he thinks about fingerprints. It's a well-accepted fact in the forensics community that fingerprints from different fingers of the same person 
aka intraperson fingerprints, are unique, and therefore unmatchable. Our team decided to challenge this widely held presumption. And that is why Eric and I are irritated by this, because that is incorrect. <laughs> that is wrong. It is what is fueling a lot of this, and it's coming right from the author himself, who has been corrected by several reviewers and is still propagating this incorrect statement that is fueling media that is now coming back to us basically going, oh, somebody showed the fingerprints and proved it using AI are not unique. And that's the problem. When the paper you know, is seeking to really show intraperson, like he says there in the quote, fingerprints aren't unique, but it's showing that intraperson fingerprints have similarities. Exactly. And that's it. That's it. That's it. Full stop. That's it. That's, that's what it. it shows. And to go from intraperson fingerprints have similarities to fingerprints aren't unique, just broad, is an insane leap. Yes. Or to even say intraperson fingerprints aren't unique. Right. <laughs> so it's incorrect. Interperson fingerprints are distinguishable. It's even shown in the paper, in the paper. that they are. <laughs> Saying this publicly while the paper clearly states the opposite is amazing. Yeah, and then as you go through and read this, I mean, most of it comes out of the YouTube video uh, that's on the website. I don't even think that Holly Everts Everts wrote this paper because 99% of the text comes from the YouTube video, sure. which was the author, Gabe Guo. Uh, and th these headlines are just clickbait kinds of headlines that I have to believe the author has been told already multiple times, that's not true. In fact, it's so not true, we're not going to publish your paper in this journal. <laughs> and it's not because you're challenging us to think differently or you're challenging assumptions. It's because what you're stating is wrong. And we're trying to help you say it in a more accurate way so that you're correct and it's not messing up our lives in the courtroom <laughs> having to deal with this. And I'm going to show you an example of a dumb person in a moment who wrote about fingerprints. Eric, here is a LinkedIn post that I would like oh, to boy. read to you because this exemplifies exactly the problem that I, I and I'm sure you're running into. Starts off with, I'm not a scientist or criminologist. I'm a marketing manager who likes reading science magazines. Hmm. So today, it's my post is not about professional topics, but about my hobby, science, AI, and humanity. It was considered proven that the prints of different fingers of one person are different. You can't unlock your phone with your index finger if it remembers your thumb. Now it is not the case. The prints of all ten fingers of one person have so much in common now that we can identify them. If a fingerprint was found at the scene of one crime and a thumbprint was found at the site of another, we can accurately determine that that came from the same person. This discovery was made by Gabe Guo, a student at Columbia University in New York with the help of AI and published in Science Magazine. AI checked 60,000 fingerprints and came up with a way to analyze them and claim that people have been wrong all that time. Now it will be necessary to review many court cases because the innocent will be acquitted and criminals will be found. 
It is a revolutionary discovery that will change the world of criminology. It should also change the attitude towards being right and confident that humans know everything. Thanks to AI, we're able to identify past mistakes and correct them. And that is the problem, because people who don't understand science are reading these headlines this way, which are not being helped by the author, and it's being propagated incorrectly. Right, where the, the findings of the paper, main discovery, different fingers share strong similarities, is not what's being described, disseminated, discussed. It is something completely different, a completely different statement. What's, there's, a, there's a phrase for that. People thinking they're experts on something that they're not experts in. <laughs> right? Is that the Dunning-Kruger effect, something like that? Yes, Dunning-Kruger effect. Good job, Brain, remembering remembering that name. Glenn, uh, speaking of other articles, we're looking at one from CNN. And yes, uh, th this really stood out for me. So, Glenn, who, who would you say is the most famous quote-unquote, fingerprint critic of the past 25 years? I would probably go with Simon Cole. He's certainly one of the most prolific writers. We've had Simon Cole on the show, and one of the things I like about Simon's story is that he eventually even joined OSAC and helped fingerprint examiners to even write standards and sort of join the process. He wasn't just a critic. He became engaged with the field, but I'd say Simon Cole. But he's not a fingerprint examiner. He has written extensively about the field, and he has recommended things that should be improved upon. But but he's not like a fingerprint stand, right? Right. Correct. So, uh, thankfully, I was very happy to to see this a reporter from CNN happened to call him up and ask his opinion on this study. Here's what Simon has to say. First, he said the paper is interesting but its practical utility is overstated. And then goes on, we were not wrong about fingerprints. The unproven but intuitively true claim that no two fingerprints are, quote, exactly alike is not rebutted by finding that fingerprints are similar. Fingerprints from different people, as well as from the same person, have always been known to be similar. Yeah, well said. Very well said, Simon. And again, this is someone very knowledgeable about the field, but also someone who has taken a critical eye to our field, taking a look at this paper and not finding it helpful or particularly novel. Yeah, he even points out, it's not clear to me when they think law enforcement will have only some, but not all, of an individual's fingerprints on record. Yeah, that was your point, Eric. Yeah, when, when's that going to happen? It'd be unusual. I mean, sometimes, but... Yes, out of the millions and billions of prints in the in databases you know around the world, it's not a even close to a significant percentage. Yeah, and boy, here's another possible use. If they had actually tested, like trained the database on tips of fingers, so making correlations between cores and tips, if you had a tip from a crime scene and you had a suspicion it could be one of these people, one of these suspects, but the tips were not recorded on the 10-print card, could there be some probability of, well, we should start with getting fingerprints from that guy out of the 10 because it's 78% chance it could have come from one of his fingerprint tips. I could maybe go, well, there's some usefulness there as a niche little thing, but 
that does happen. You get tips or sides or weird prints from scenes that are not recorded on that part of the card. But of course, that's not how this AI was trained. And we have no idea how it would function because you said it looked at the core and the central area. We don't have any idea how this would function with parallel ridges with no focal points up in the tip. There's potential there, but that's not what was explored. So going back to the CNN article, which I have to mention the Arthur, uh, I'm not sure, I'm going to bitcher this, Jacopo Prisco? Yeah, you did. <laughs> I, I I hope it's, that's close enough. Is that Joe Piscopo's cousin? <laughs> Mr. Prisco, I think... I can apologize for the name pronunciation, but I think he did a fantastic job in researching this article for publication because he's got quotes from, I mean, the two people I would say to reach out to, right? Simon and then also from Professor Christophe Champeau from the University of Lausanne. Again, we've had him on the show, but a huge wealth of knowledge about forensic science in general and fingerprint comparisons in particular. Who else would you want? who's so measured and thoughtful about forensic issues and can be very, very measured and neutral and has been critical of fingerprints as well, as well as trying to help improve the field, taking a very critical look. He does have some great quotes here, Eric. He's very much wanting to move us forward to improve. He's not just sticking with the standard, the status quo of where we are right now. His quote, Professor Champeau's quote on this uh, paper, I think they have oversold their paper <laughs> by lack of knowledge, in my view. That's it. I'm happy that they have rediscovered something known, but essentially it's a tempest in a teacup. I, I think Christoph kind of summed it up in a couple sentences, what we've been trying to get across for this whole time. As he is known to do. <laughs> Just perfect. Perfect. A tempest in a teapot. Or as maybe the Shakespearean much ado about nothing. Yeah, I think the other thing that we hit on that uh, is brought out in this article is that the author, Guo, says, We are the first to explicitly point out that the similarity is due to the ridge orientation at the center of the fingerprint. And I don't entirely dispute that statement. However, furthermore, we are the first to attempt to match fingerprints from different fingers of the same person, at least within an automated system. So I I take those two points and I understand, yeah, okay, those are two novel things that I think gives this paper a little bit of momentum. But what I like about Christoph's response to this is that he says their argument that these shapes are somewhat correlated between fingers has been known from the early start of fingerprinting, when it was done manually, and it has been documented for years. And I think that's the thing that we were also alluding to earlier, is that it's, it's a known phenomenon, this similarity within source fingers. We get that. There have been quite a few different models that have modeled this intrasource variability. Now, usually they have the same finger over and over and over, but we have seen at least different approaches recognizing that there can be similarities within the same person across different fingers, and this paper does explicitly focus on that. I will give them that. That's something that they could hold on to, but again, as you pointed out, as Simon and Christoph had pointed out, they've just gone 
way too far. And then the media has gone way too far. Let's sort of end this with one more measured response that uh, we both really enjoyed. And that last source comes from David Kay. Professor David Kay, oh, he's yeah. a professor of law at Penn State University. But to say he's just a law professor really sells him short. He's actually one of the smartest men I've ever met in my life. He is really pretty brilliant when it comes to statistics and forensic issues and the law. He's just such a cerebral thinker, just how many great contributions he's had over the years. He has a blog. We'll put the link in the description of the podcast episode, but it's for Sci, that's S-C-I, lawblogspot.com. So yeah, that F-O-R-S-C-I-L-A-W.blogspot.com. And again, David K, not a fingerprint guy, not just a yes man that's going to support everything that whatever we're doing in, in fingerprints or in forensic science often critical of, of different topics. And you can see this in his blog of, of what he talks about in science, the law, and this intersection of forensics. The blog post that deals specifically with this article is titled, What's Uniqueness Got to Do With It? A little Tina Turner reference there. I like A it. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. And as he basically says, or as the band uh, Warren might say, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Uh, As he very succinctly says, does this mean that the well-accepted fact, quote-unquote, long-held belief in uniqueness has been shattered or not? Well, clearly not. The study is about similarity, not uniqueness. Eric, I don't know how many times you you said that, but that is exactly what David has said here. In fact, uniqueness has essentially nothing to do with it, which is why I kept saying eh, highly discriminating instead of uniqueness. To say that objects are unique and therefore unmatchable is a non sequitur. And I finally love this analogy. It's one I use all the time. A human genome is probably unique to that individual, including identical twins. But forensic geneticists know that six locus STR profiles are matchable to those of other individuals in the population because you can have small areas that are matching and similar, but the entire thing, the full object itself, is distinguishable from all others. And that's really what we're trying to get at here, is that we know within the fingerprint, small areas, small regions, can bear similarity to other fingerprints. We know that. We've not disputed that in 30 years. That's not what the paper is about. The paper is basically saying there are similarities across fingers within the same person. David is quite succinctly picked up on that. It's a fantastic article going into quotes from the paper and quotes from the press and refuting these overstatements and pulling back to the limited statements that you can make based on the study results of the paper. Which mirror ours. Yeah. So, Glenn, the majority of our audience is, you know, not the the generic layperson. Or asleep by now. (laughs) Only people left by this point are the actual (laughs) fingerprint examiners. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So, for the fingerprint examiner, for something like this that hits the mainstream press, that gets passed around on attorney listservs, 
uh, you know, as something, hey, bring this up the next time you got a fingerprint expert on the stand. What should fingerprint experts be prepared with if they're asked about this article, this paper, or any of these news articles or quotes, if they're faced with this on the stand? Right. That's a great question. And <laughs> a, a couple of things. One, the examiner should read the original paper. And yeah. it is open access. So please do get a copy of it. Do be able to answer that question with, well, first of all, I actually have read the original paper. You want to be able to say that. I might try this, Eric. The first time I'm asked about it, I might nod and go, you know that phrase about you're not supposed to believe everything on the internet that you hear? <laughs> Here's a really good example of that. And then say, look, having read the original paper, the paper points out that there are some similarities across fingers within the same person. That, And I'm going to hold up my fingers to jurors and say, what the paper is basically saying is that my left middle finger might have some similarities to my left ring finger or my left little finger. And just kind of show like three fingers in sequence and say that there's a higher chance of similarities across those three fingers then if you randomly select any person in this courtroom and compare them to my fingers, you're more likely to find some similarities across my fingers. I actually think jurors will get that, especially if you hold up your hand and kind of demonstrate that a little bit. Because what this ultimately means is, because we know that there are some DNA reasons and some biological reasons for these similarities shared across fingers, it would make sense that there could be some similarities in that way, as opposed to any randomly selected person who are more likely to have some differences. And I think jurors could understand that. I think if they keep trying to read from the paper, I would come back to that same sentence that you said. I would have this quote memorized. I'm going to say it again. You said it multiple times. The paper said, in this work, our main discovery is that fingerprints from different fingers of the same person share strong similarities. I don't dispute that. But that's all the paper says. If the paper, if the research supported anything else beyond that, it would say it. And it doesn't. And it doesn't. I think if that quote is said, and you say it just like that and make it very clear, I actually read the paper, not the press release, because I think right there the attorneys will not have read the paper. Yeah. Maybe you get a good one who's smart enough to have read the original paper. All right, good. But that's all it says. And then if they even bring up the word unique, go, you'll notice in that paper the word unique is actually <laughs> never said. Not a single time. Not a single time. For good reason. It shouldn't be said because, as David right. Kay points out, there's nothing to do with it. And yes. it's not what they were testing. So it's impossible that they could have proven that fingerprints aren't unique because it's not what they were testing. Exactly. I mean, that's where it really comes down to. After all of this, they were not testing for uniqueness. They were never attempting to disprove uniqueness. They were testing for similarities. They found similarities. That's it. And can you provide some intelligence from that information that could be useful in a case, maybe in some very limited circumstances? Yes. And that's that's what they've shown. Well, I think we've said it all. Well, Glenn, let's wrap up one of our longer episodes here. Hopefully we were informative here, a little entertaining, and, and 
and this can be something that people come back to, you know, who knows, maybe this all goes away. It's just a flash in the pan. Maybe we have to deal with it for the next uh, 10 years, but either way, glad that we can find the time to jump into this while it's still hot in the press. You know, it's, I mean, it is a rare circumstance when something fingerprint related bubbles so far up to the surface in the mainstream. Yeah, when we actually have really interesting things like black box studies or <laughs> some nothing. <laughs> the palm print studies or yeah, nothing. Nobody nobody cares. Well, in any case, thank you all for listening and you know, head over to our website doubleloopodcast.com. You know, from there you can see uh, links to our Patreon page. Uh, links to our merchandise stores, different ways to support you know, what we do here. And then you can also find a bunch of old episodes. And uh, if you have any questions for us, any comment or piece of this paper that uh, we may have missed or didn't touch on, you know, email us, glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or eric at rayforensics.com. And feel free to hit me up about classes. I have yeah. some classes coming up. Well, at least one in Southern California about testimony. Uh, I imagine we're going to have to add this paper to, to the class. <laughs> I imagine it will come up. We'll have to see what a good defense attorney could do with this paper. I'm interested in yeah, that. Yeah, that'll be practical answers for challenging questions in the courtroom. That is May 6th through the 8th. Go to ronsmithandassociates.com to register for that. And also check out webinars that I'm teaching through evolveforensics.com. That's Alice White's website and company. And check out those webinars. I believe I'm teaching them in March and April. Well, Glenn, uh, I've got a class coming up I'm very excited to talk about. It is uh, another exclusion class. So I used to teach a whole bunch about exclusions. It's been a couple of years since I had an exclusion class available, even more here since I had it available here in the U.S., I just taught it a couple times for a European examiners a couple of years ago. But this is going to be April 15th through the 18th in Schwanksville, Pennsylvania. It's just outside of Philadelphia. So if you're interested in attending another class on exclusions, especially one that focuses on uh, you know, all these things I talk about on exclusions, sufficiency for exclusions, but also how APHIS can assist in the exclusion decision, uh, you know, reach out to me, send me an email, you know, let me know that you're interested and I'll get you more information. And then shortly here, I'll uh, mention on the podcast, the registration site, I'm still getting that set up at the moment, uh, but that should be up soon for people to register for the class. Again, it's April 15th through the 19th in Pennsylvania and looking forward to seeing a lot of people there. Thank you all for listening. And uh, remember, the opinions expressed on the show are, the, are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. And with that, I can thank you guys all for listening and talk to you next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.